His friends are troubled. And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be worried. Is that what he's saying? Now, do you think any of his disciples, when Jesus said that, was asking themselves, this Jesus, is he a hypocrite? Because we just heard him say three times, once in each of the last three chapters, John recorded that Jesus himself was troubled. Being troubled is one of the many ways that the Gospels tell us that Jesus was fully man. He is just like us. He was not only tempted in every way as we are, but he personally experienced a troubled heart on many occasions, probably for most of his ministry. And this night he was contemplating finishing the work that he had come to do, to die in our place on the cross for our sins that we might be with him. So he was troubled. But Jesus wasn't a hypocrite. Hypocrites tell you one thing, do something else, that's a sin, and we know Jesus didn't sin. So we can assume with this that Jesus is giving his disciples the same loving counsel that he is giving himself. You see, troubled hearts, friends, are not necessarily a sin. And isn't that good news? Because we all are familiar with troubled hearts. Often it can be many times in the same day. There's times where it can be weeks on end, and sadly, in this world, it can sometimes be for years. And many of you have troubled hearts at this time. If you don't, you're going to get up tomorrow and something's going to happen. So think of all the things in life that trouble us. Some are small. You know, you can't find a parking spot when you're in Philly. That's a trouble. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that weigh on us, that keep us awake at night, that unsettle our souls, that keep playing in our heads. There's relational unrest at home, at work, and even in church. There's spiritual battles constantly. There's financial problems. There's deep concerns over our children. There's deep concerns when you can't have children. We have regrets from our past, and we have fears about the future. We're stressed out. We struggle with chronic pain. Sometimes marriage is difficult. Sometimes people are anxious to get married. World events, moral collapse, and we could go on and on and on. Probably could be here all afternoon. Troubled hearts, the, the truth is troubled hearts are reality. And though our troubles are different than the disciples... Our troubles are different than Shackleton's men. The antidote to all troubled hearts is the same as it always been for all time. And like any good friend, Jesus is paying close attention to his, his disciples. They had just consumed some really hard news. Boom, boom, boom. And it was only going to get worse from the Garden of Gethsemane on. And so what he wanted to do out of love is give them what they needed in that moment what they were going to need for the next few days, and really what they are going to need for the rest of their lives. They didn't need to get away. They didn't need to dull their senses. They didn't need a vacation. And this is most important. We, we quickly forget this. They didn't need a change in their circumstances to hear Jesus' words. And in these three verses that we just read, Jesus is comforting his disciples' troubled hearts in three ways. First, 
he comforts them with a command. And then he comforts them with a coming kingdom. And then finally, he seals it by comforting them with a commitment. There's a command and a coming kingdom and a commitment that comfort us. Now, before I get too far into this message, I want to pause so that my words are not misconstrued or misunderstood or give the wrong impression. You might be wondering, Dave, what about medications to deal with symptoms of a troubled heart, anxiety, depression? Is it okay or not okay to use them? Well, they weren't around 2,000 years ago. The Bible doesn't address those things, you guys. The short answer is no. It's not necessarily wrong. When properly used, medications can be God's gift to help us deal with troubled hearts. They can help us think clearly about what Scripture says, the truths that it has to offer us of living in a fallen world. The problem is, the problem arises when medication is either the first thing, the primary thing, or the only thing that we turn to. Jesus is giving us an antidote. We cannot ignore it. We still need to deal with and live by Jesus' comforting counsel in this passage with our hearts. And if you want some resources, if you're wondering how to think biblically about this issue, check, check with me later, send me a text, ask any of the pastors. We'd be glad to help you think rightly about that issue. So now, back to Jesus' comforting us with a command. You know, usually when we think about a command, it's like, that seems harsh. Don't tell me what I have to do. I'm suffering. Give me, some, give me something to uh, eat, some warm food. Give me a fire. Put your arm around my shoulder. Pray for me. Those things should be done. But a command seems harsh. But notice what Jesus doesn't say that we often uh, say in those situations when people come to us with troubled hearts. He doesn't minimize the seriousness of their condition. He doesn't tell them it's no big deal. Don't worry, be happy. Song from the 80s, you guys. No platitudes trying to calm them down. Just keep things in perspective. Think of what you have and not what you don't have. Jesus acknowledges the reality of their troubles, but then gives them a far greater reality. He gives them himself. Let's conform to Jesus' way when we comfort people in trouble. Let's not minimize their trials. Let's not lob truth bombs at them and think we've cared for them by doing that. See, unlike Jesus, we don't always know what's going on inside somebody's heart. Let's listen. Let's ask questions. If they're faint-hearted, encourage them. If they're weak, help them. And be patient with them all. So that's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't lob a truth bomb. But look what he does say. It's very clear, it's simple, and it's direct. He says, believe in God and believe also in me. Some translations, yours might say, trust in God, trust also in me. Same meaning, have faith, entrust yourselves to Jesus who loves you. He says that patiently and compassionately and endearingly to his friends. So, What's the deal? Did the, the disciples not believe already? No, they believed. Judas didn't. 
But the disciples believed. Jesus, though, is calling them for their faith to get traction in dealing with their troubled hearts. Calling them to bring to mind all they've heard and learned and seen in Jesus these last three years. If we really want to address our troubled hearts head on, then we need to entrust ourselves completely to Christ. Believe everything he says about himself, everything that the scriptures talk about Jesus. It's not just head knowledge. Our problems are down here. We need the grace of God to get it transferred from our heads and deal with it down where it resides in our heart. Our troubles are big, but Jesus is far, far bigger. Jesus, as we know in reading the Gospel of John, has never been hesitant to equate himself with God, right? That's strewn throughout the Gospel of John. I am statements. The I am of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Jesus, five times up to this point, has said, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, and finally, most recently, I am the resurrection and the life. That's who he is. They also had seen his miracles, amazing things that they said only God could do. Those miracles weren't the end of the things that only God could do. Those miracles were to point toward forgiveness of sins. Only God in Jesus can forgive our sins. He's claiming who he is. Believe in God, believe also in me. So we need to be realists about our troubles, but even more so realists about the nature, the promises, and the power of Jesus to deal with our troubled hearts. It's not positive thinking. We're not just optimists. It's believing in our hearts all that the Bible says about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. His goodness, His power, His justice, His mercy, that all things, regardless of our circumstances, all things work together for good. Some memorable Christian hymns. We just sang one of them, How Great Thou Art. There's another one, It Is Well With My Soul. These men were able to meld the the real troubles of life with the promises and the hope of Jesus forever. If you haven't read the story behind It Is Well With My Soul, go home this afternoon and read it. All right, it will help you see how one man applied the truths. But these men, these, these modern Christian hymn writers, they weren't the first to come up with this idea. Go to the Psalms, you guys. Troubled hearts need the Psalms. They meld beautifully these truths of the reality of trouble and the reality of God's promises. Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? The reality of trial. Followed directly by this. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist comes right on top of it. One after the other. Reality of trial, reality of the promises of God in Christ. So when we exercise trust and believe in God, we will, by his grace, receive comfort even if our circumstances never change. One more. I could go to every psalm pretty much and do this, you guys. I'm only going to do one more. Psalm 130. First two verses describe the reality about his condition. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's in a dark place. And he closes this psalm, though, with this. 
the promise, the reality of, of God. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's where the psalmist goes to lift his soul. The best thing we can do, friends, when our hearts are troubled is to open up our Bibles. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of these profound truths to comfort us. We read and believe what the Bible says about Jesus. So is it good that Jesus commands us to believe in him? Yeah, we need it. But a command is not the only comfort Jesus gives us. You know, without minimizing their troubles, he urges them to lift their eyes off their present reality far beyond to an infinitely greater reality. Verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus isn't being obtuse or confusing. He comforts them by telling them what awaits them in the distant future. It's a coming kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I want you to think about that. With As troubled as you are now, as troubled as you're going to be, I want you to set your eyes on eternity. Paul was able to do this. The one who suffered beatings and shipwrecks for the gospel did not lose heart. He believed that his present afflictions were preparing for him an eternal weight of glory that was beyond anything he could ask or imagine. That's what kept him running the race that God set before him. Heaven is important to think about in trials. C.S. Lewis said this in The Problem of Pain. Any talk, any talk about troubled hearts, which says nothing of heaven, is leaving out almost the entire one side of the account. There can be no, he's pretty absolute here, there can be no solution to our troubled hearts that does not put forth the promise of heaven. I like how he puts Either there's pie in the sky or there's not, is what, what Lewis is saying. If there is no pie in the sky, then Christianity is false because the doctrine of heaven is woven through the, the fabric of all of Scripture. Now, um, we're getting ready to talk about heaven, and so I need to press the pause button a little bit here and kind of fly up because libraries have been written about what happens after we die, you guys. <laughs> and lots of different opinions. What Jesus here, I believe, is comforting his disciples with is a vision of heaven that begins the moment Jesus returns to earth. He said he was coming back. It's called the second coming. It's then that we receive our resurrection bodies. It's then we begin to live eternal life in what's referred to as the new heavens and the new earth that will last forever. It will never end. This is what he's calling his disciples with their troubled hearts to look forward to. Now, that's what I've seen in my study, but there are differing opinions. You have to realize this. Some think that this is referring to what's called the intermediate stage. Intermediate stage is kind of what the thief was going to experience on the cross. He died, he was with Jesus, but he wasn't yet in his resurrected body. In this intermediate stage, we will not yet be living in the new heavens and the new earth. However, let's not get bogged down in this, you guys. Let's study it. We can do it. But, but too many theologians 
over the centuries, Catholic theologians especially, have worried about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. We don't want to do that. That's not relevant here. The bottom line here, at some point, all Christians will spend eternity in an unchanging state with God in heaven, in new bodies, in a place that's perfect. You got questions about that? See one of the pastors. We'll try to help you figure out all the different stages. But that's where we're ultimately ending up. So back to the comfort of a coming kingdom. Despite what some popular entertainers say often, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your best life is most definitely not now. (laughs) How can it be? With all that list of troubles that we talked about, how can your best life be now? Moses, man who prefigured Christ, whom God passed by, wrote, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. Moses knew toil and trouble, but he kept his eyes on the prize. He suffered reproach for Christ because he was looking forward to a heaven with God. This week, if I'm honest with you, I even thought of it when I was, we were singing How Great Thou Art. I spend relatively little time thinking about or anticipating heaven. That's, that's just the honest truth. Now, I'm 63, I'm getting older, it's starting to happen more frequently. <laughs> um, I know it's out there. I know it's waiting. I know it's secured. I know Jesus will be there. I know there's no tears or trouble or sorrow. I'm not going to sin. But the reality is, heaven's just not getting a lot of traction in my life, in good times or troubling times. And as a result, I know I'm not as excited about heaven as I need to be. That's just a reality. This past week, I had a standing visit with my cardiologist, and we've gotten to be good friends over the last five years. And after running tests, he looks at me and says, well, Dave, looks like you're going to live a few more days. And so we laughed, and we laughed and, uh, and just joked along. And I was walking out, and it hit me. What if he just added one more word in that sentence? Well, Dave, it looks like you're only going to live for a few more days. Wow. It's a whole different sentence with a single word. How would I respond? I'd be sad. I'd be crying. <laughs> Wouldn't know what to say to Andrea and my kids. A lot of tears. But would there be, would there be a window in those few days? Would there be some moments? Would there be some time in my heart of anticipation, excitement, and I think there's a measure of joy. Would there be sometime in that span? For Christians, I think there should be. That's the honest truth. There should be, based on what we're reading here, based on what we read throughout Scripture, there should be an anticipation of that. It's one of the reasons Paul writes that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that we have when we pass through trials. When you're you're suffering in any one of those ways that we talked about and you're not 
You're not dragged down by your circumstances. People come to you and say, how can you do that with all that's swirling around in your life? You've got a reason to tell them because this isn't your whole life. You've got something waiting for you out there. Given how much I t- time I spend researching places and I, I, I get criticized for this by my family, um, but researching places that we're going to travel to, I spend weeks, you guys, thinking about and researching and preparing to visit a city for a few days. That's no joke. I spend almost nothing in terms of thinking about where I'm going to spend eternity. Relatively nothing. And my soul is poorer for it. But it's not too late for me. And it's not too late for you guys. But how do we do that? How do we cultivate an anticipation of heaven? How do we prepare ourselves for that inevitable day when it's on our doorstep? Well, same thing we did in the first measure of comfort. We open our Bibles. The Bible is the only source of totally reliable truth about heaven. Books are written about heaven, they're okay, but they can't contradict the Bible. They can't come from anything else other than God's Word. Now, you might be familiar with the Bibles and think, well, Dave, didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him? Yeah, the Bible does say that. But it's not saying that we can't know anything about heaven. It's just saying we can't know it perfectly. But he's given us enough to know that our hearts need not be troubled. So what does the Bible tell us about heaven to whet our appetites, to motivate us, to give us anticipation so that we can say, I'm ready. I'm ready. There's some windows of time when that day comes that we can say, yeah, I'm actually looking forward to this. Well, we can't cover them all, so I'm just going to give you four. First, heaven is going to be like this place we're living right now, you guys. It's going to be a lot like our present earth. Revelation 21 talks about New Jerusalem coming down from heaven onto earth. When Jesus returns, heaven and earth are brought together. Heaven is where God is, and God says, my place is with man. The two have to be together. And so finally, that cliche, heaven on earth will be real. We will actually experience heaven on an earth like this. And the new earth doesn't mean that this earth we have right now is going to be um, blown up and totally destroyed. Guys, this is real. This is really what Scripture teaches us. The new earth means it's going to be redeemed from all the effects of a fall. And there's going to be enough similarities remaining in this new earth that we're going to get there and we're going to say, yeah, this feels right. It reminds me of that place that we used to be for those 70 or 80 years, but so much better. It's way beyond anything I could imagine. When sin entered the world, it didn't just infect our hearts. It affected the world we inhabit. It's been in bondage to decay, pestilence, and natural disasters. So the next time, Andrew and I did this over uh, our sabbatical, the next time you see some incredible sunrise over the ocean or a sunset over the mountains or something spectacular, that you think, this is heaven. It's not like it should be. <laughs> it's just a dim shadow of the experiences that we're going to have in the new heavens and the new earth. That's, 
That's, my, that's why we can't imagine it, you guys, because we can't imagine anything better than the sun coming up over the ocean. That place, trees won't die, rivers won't flood, earthquakes and hurricanes won't destroy. People in Mary Street can appreciate that, we know. When Shackleton's men returned from England, they were in a far better place than, than Elephant Island, right? They would agree that. They're not on this God-forsaken land. But, friends, the England they returned to wasn't a picnic. It was 1916. It was right in the middle of World War I. <laughs> Some of the men on Shackleton's ship who returned to England were in the trenches of France fighting the Germans in a matter of weeks. <laughs> That's what awaited them after being rescued. One of Shackleton's men literally died at war six weeks after getting back from the Antarctic. But that's not what it's going to be like for us when Jesus comes to get us and rescue us. We're going to go to heaven, and there's not going to be any trench warfare. There's only going to be joy and laughter. We will experience something far closer to the Garden of Eden. Rivers and mountains, real rivers and mountains, cities and buildings, gardens, creatures, all of it untarnished. It's going to be a physical world that we're going to be able to measure. And it's not just the beauty of the earth food and drinks, celebrations, music, worship. Brandon was talking about we're going to sing songs that we're never going to grow tired of. There's going to be worship. There's going to be warm fellowship and laughter. There will be work to do, but we're not going to be sweating by our brow to accomplish it. Children won't get sick. It will not be hard to love our neighbor as ourself. And most importantly, we won't sin. We won't be able to sin. Everything's going to be familiar, you guys, just renewed. Gifted writers can help us develop our imagination about heaven while at the same time not contradicting the truth of the word. C.S. Lewis, again, one of the best, he wrote in The Great Divorce about solid people. Solid people are believers in heaven, living in heaven. He writes, in heaven, everything is solid and thus painful to anyone not made for heaven. If you're not made for heaven, a blade of grass will penetrate your feet. If you're not made for heaven, an apple is as heavy as a bowling ball. Water is solid, even as it cascades down a river. Those in heaven are solid, real people Human beings made by the Lord of heaven. Real people in a real place, that's heaven. Next thing we can think about, it's eternal. And we can't grasp eternal. Hell is real and eternal. Heaven is real and eternal. And once Jesus comes back, we will never leave that place for an infinite length of time. You know, we humans are transient. We're always on the move. We're always wanting to do the next thing, have the next experience, go someplace different. It's always been that way. Sometimes of our own volition, sometimes we're forced. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, never to return. Abraham left Ur, not knowing where he was going. Israel was nomadic for 40 years after being in Egypt for 400 years. Judah and Israel carried off into exile. 
Romans destroyed Jerusalem 40 years after Jesus was crucified. Andrea and I lived in five cities in four years of our marriage. (laughs) That's transient. But once we're in heaven, we won't ever, ever, ever have to leave. And we won't want to, will we? It doesn't mean we're not going to have new, exciting experiences there. Because I think we will. Again and again and again. Every day will be new. It's just that our place prepared by Jesus will always be there. We'll never say it's time to go home because we'll be home. And that's the third feature of heaven. It's really going to be our true home. For the first time in your lives, after you die and you're with Jesus in that place that he's prepared for you, you're finally going to be home. New mailing address that will never change. We are going to remember this place but it's going to be in the back. Yeah, I kind of remember that, but this is what I've been longing for. This is the place I was made for, and this is the place that was made for me. Whatever makes a home warm, we're going to experience that. Welcoming. It just fits. It seems right. Now, if you've got a good home and a good home life now, great. That's God's grace on you. But don't settle for it. Just like that sunrise, there's something much better out there. Don't, find your, don't set your hope in a good home. And if you've had a hard home life, maybe you currently have one now, Jesus is saying, look forward, look ahead, look to what I've prepared for you. J.C. Ryle expresses this so well about home. He says, home is a place where we are generally loved for our sakes and not for our gifts or our possessions. It's the place we're loved to the end, that we're never forgotten, and we're always welcome. Believers here are in a strange land in the school of life, he says, but in the life to come, they will be at home. We're going home. I was thinking this week of the men, the millions of men and women throughout the course of our country's history who suffered under slavery, who knew that their home was not in this place. Home didn't conjure up good thoughts for them. I think that's why the African-American spirituals are so rich with not just emotion, but a deep, deep longing. And I'm going to take license with one of the anonymous authors of this hymn who wrote, I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. Jesus, my Savior, coming after me, coming for to carry me home. They were looking past death to the eternal home that Jesus has prepared for them and said, we're ready. Take us home. I'll work here as long as you got me, but I want to be with you in the place that you prepared for me. And that's the final most important feature of heaven to get us anticipating. It's where Jesus is. Psalm 73 says this so well. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you've trusted in Jesus, you will be with him in his resurrected body forever. You no longer will have to hope for what you can't see. You'll see him face to face in the place 
that he's made just for you. Without Jesus, heaven isn't heaven, you guys. We could have the nicest room, the best food, the greatest conversation, the most spectacular scenery. But if Jesus isn't there for eternity, it's going to be boring. And it will get old fast. But to be with Jesus in that setting is exhilarating. And that's what we have to look forward to. If we're more excited about the prospect of a change of circumstances, of a true home on a new earth that lasts forever, more than we are excited about being with Jesus. And we've got our priorities backwards. And that can happen. In our flesh, that can happen. We can get things upside down. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be added to you. That's true in this life and that's also going to be true in the life to come. Without the giver, the gifts completely lose their luster. So as we seek to cultivate an excitement about heaven, let's study it, let's meditate on it, but let's start and end with Jesus. Obey him, love him, study him. Psalm 16 says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand forever, um, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasures are with Jesus, not with our circumstances. So Jesus comforts us with a command and this incredible coming kingdom, but can we bank on it? Can we count on it happening? And the answer is yes. And that's the final way God comforts us. Brandon, can you bring the band up, please? He comforts us friends, with a commitment. Verse 3 is our assurance that all we hope for about heaven will one day happen. Jesus says to them, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When you watch, when you watch Shackleton's documentary, pay close attention to the very end. He wrote a letter to his wife and he said this, I have done it. We went through hell, and not a life was lost. See, Shackleton rescued everybody. Not one man died, including Shackleton, had to die to bring all those men home back to England. And we know it's true because it's documented in letters that Shackleton wrote to his wife. We have the real letters. We know it's true. Well, Christians believe that the Bible is God's letter to us. It's been preserved and without qualification, it's the word of God. We believe God is light and truth. In him is no darkness at all. Everything it says is true. And so when Jesus says, I will come back and take you to be with me, we can bank on it. Luke wrote in Acts, this Jesus, this is after the ascension, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way. We see it in Scripture that Jesus is coming back to get us. He's going to rec rescue us and take us home to be with him. But unlike Shackleton and his story, Jesus had to die to make that happen. Jesus' death on the cross was all part of him preparing a room for us. The work has been done. He did his Father's will. He lived a perfect life so that we could receive righteousness. He died in our place on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. He intercedes for us day and night. And all of this, all this work is preparing for us and securing for us our room in heaven. A room that's been fully paid for and which will never be canceled. So if you've trusted Jesus to forgive your sins, these are comforting words for you in your time of trouble. 
You can take hope and apply them as a salve to your hearts. If you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus and you're wondering how you can get there, there's really good news. You don't have to do anything. You believe in him. He said, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe who he says he is, the one and only son of the living God. Friends, let's be those who face the reality of our troubles with the far greater reality of the promises we have in Jesus. And as we go, let's remember one more commitment he made to us that's in keeping with this. He made this just a few hours after what we just read. He says to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's let be for God's glory and our joy.